look at Genesis chapter 10, we realize how important it is. Dr. James Boyce says that this is a chapter that is surely one of the most interesting and important in the entire Word of God. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Almighty God, we desire, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We want to put on the full armor of God together today to stand our ground against the schemes of the devil and after doing so, to stand. So we stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with the shield of faith, with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, with our feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, knowing that as we stand our ground, we also are called to pray without ceasing. And Lord, I pray also for me that words may be given to me that I can declare the gospel boldly as I ought to. We ask that you would instruct us and encourage us in your word this morning. Your word is truth and your word is a sword. And so would you cut straight this morning. Would you do that work only your spirit can do? We ask that you'd be glorified for your son's name, for your glory, and for our good, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there's been a, a, a recent trend in the last few years, or a renewed interest, if you would, in ancestry. We are longing to know where do we come from. So certain services like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, and there's some others, but these have had a renewed interest as people are paying to find out, am I actually 116th Italian or did my great-great-grandfather know Billy the Kid? We just want to know, where do I come from? And I think that's a helpful exercise to, to know our heritage and to know the story of where we came from. The problem when we come to a passage of Scripture like Genesis chapter 10 is that we can be tempted to look at it just as a genealogy. We can be tempted to look at this and say, there's a lot of hard to pronounce names, and this is really uh, just something to skip over. If you have a a, a daily devotional time or a quiet time, as we used to call it in the 90s, a time where you spend with Christ in his word, in prayer, and in Bible reading, I do that. Uh, My my morning routine is typically uh, to... Uh, pray, and then to read through a a reading plan called the Machane Reading Plan, Um, Robert Murray Machane. A lot of us are doing the same page summer, where we're in the same text of scripture uh, as a church all summer in the New Testament. Um, I typically go through the Machane, which is, it's a very helpful reading plan. You can look it up, M-C-C-H-E-Y-N-E, and maybe we'll link it to the sermon notes on the website this week. But very helpful reading plan. It begins with a uh, book in the Pentateuch and historical writings. It gives you uh, a, a full chapter in the prophets. It gives you the uh, poetic writings like the Psalms, Proverbs, and then it gives you a New Testament. And those last two, it gives you those twice a year. Uh, and the way Machane lays it out is two of those chapters are personal devotion and the other two are to be read in the family in family worship if you do that daily. And, and I find it to be a very helpful exercise. But when I'm in the Old Testament, often 
I'll come across a long list of names. And it's very tempting for me, and I know for you, to just skim over the names, to just bypass them. Someone said to me first service after the gathering this morning, uh, they came up and they said, hey, a lot of pastors I know would skip Genesis chapter 10 and not uh, take the time to go through it. Thank you for being a church and pastors who go through all of the scriptures. And one commentator actually said, I want to get the quote, he said, it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. And I find that to be uh, very concerning. Why would you not study all of scripture? In fact, as Christ followers, we believe and uphold the words of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching. That, that's doctrine. That's what we know as the, the fundamentals of the faith. For reproof, that's when we, we need to be rebuked. We need to be shown we're wrong. We are not the highest authority. Scripture is. Uh, it's useful. It's profitable for correction. We need to set, be set straight in our thinking, set straight in our living. And it's profitable for training in righteousness so that we as men and women of God can be complete and equipped for every good work. Notice there, all scripture, not just our pet doctrinal go-to verses. No, all scripture, not just those that are very powerful that we say those deserve a painting on the wall or a cool text or a cool tattoo. No, all scripture is profitable. Uh, that means that when we open up to Genesis chapter 10, we can say, this is scripture. This is God's word. It is profitable. It is useful to help us. Now, not every verse has equal weight, to be sure. Much of the exposition of Romans, the book of Romans we did last year, uh, gave us just nugget after nugget of powerful verses. Not every verse has equal weight, but every chapter, every verse from the old and the new is is inspired by God and it's profitable. It's beneficial for us. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 10, we realize how important it is. Dr. James Boyce says that this is a chapter that is surely one of the most interesting and important in the entire word of God. Why we're gonna look at this today is because it's in the text, but what we're gonna see today is the nations that come from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the way that Moses, the writer, lists them out is the, is the opposite order of age and the order of lowest to highest importance. He's going to list them backwards, Japheth, Ham, and then Shem. And these nations that we see coming from these three sons will all collectively rebel. We'll see that in a minute in chapter 11 and what we'll be studying next week. But more than that, we're going to also see which of these ancestors the Messiah will descend from. So in many ways, Genesis 10 is a very important genealogy and probably the most important genealogy in scripture because it details for us out of all these names, the name from which the Messiah would descend from, the serpent crusher that we've been anticipating and waiting for since Genesis chapter three. It also provides us with the background of all these nations who will rebel against Yahweh and against his anointed one. Luther said this, he said, we have reason to regard the Holy Bible highly and to consider it a most precious treasure. This very chapter, even though it 
is considered, and I would say by liberal scholars probably, to be full of dead words. It has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed on to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to Eber, from whom the Hebrew nation received its name as the heir for whom the promise about the Christ was intended in preference to all other peoples of the whole world. So, so yes, it is a genealogy, but not in the sense that chapter 5 or chapter 11 are. Those just trace lineage from father to son or grandson. Instead, this chapter is going to list individual names that end up becoming nations of people. And though it's not just, so it's not just a tracing of individual history, just a family alone. This is, if you would, prehistoric, prehistory. And even liberal historians have said, quote, this chapter stands alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel. This is, liberal scholars even admit, this is an astonishingly accurate document. So as we look at this today, we're gonna see these things. And our outline is very simple. This is probably the simplest outline we've ever had for a sermon at Shoreline. We're gonna see in verses one through five, the sons of Japheth. We're gonna see in verses six through 20, the sons of Ham. And to surprise you, we're gonna see in verses 21 through 32, the sons of Shem. Very straightforward. So let's begin in verse one with the sons of Japheth. It says, these are the generations, the, the word there's toledoth, we've seen that used over and over to mark a new section or a new generation, a new time frame of people. These are the generations of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I argue that that's the age of the sons. Shem is the oldest, Ham is the middle, Japheth is the youngest. I know there can be an argument that Ham is the youngest and Japheth is the middle. I don't think it's that important. It says, sons were born to them after the flood. So we've, if you've been tracking with us, we've studied the flood. Noah and his sons come off of the ark with their wives. Uh, Noah sets up this altar as a fragrant, uh, glad, glad offering, a, an offering of thanksgiving. And then God makes a covenant with Noah and then he gives them this mandate to be fruitful, to multiply. It's, it's a restatement of the one he gave to Adam. Uh, and now, after the flood, we see that sons are beginning to be born to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we start with Japheth. The sons of Japheth, we have the list here. And what I want to do is not necessarily attempt to give a speculative people group for each and every name in this entire chapter. Um, but the ones we have the most data on where there's most agreement on what they probably are. Again, I'm not going to fall on my sword or die on the hill and say it's absolutely dogmatically uh, this people group came from Ashkenaz. I'm not going to do that, um, but what we have information on uh, tends to be agreed on mostly. So when we look at Japheth and his descendants, we would surmise that those of us who have a European heritage are descended from Japheth. So your, your great ancestor, of course, was Noah and Adam, but we would argue more nearly it's Japheth. So Japheth's descendants most likely spread out originally to the east and a little bit to the west from eastern Turkey where the ark landed, but then eventually migrated north of Mesopotamia from Spain to the Caspian Sea. So most scholars agree that they went into modern-day Russia and into Europe. So we have these different names. Gomer, we'll come back to him in a minute. We have Magog. Magog's sons 
arguably became the Slavs, the Russians, the Bulgarians, the Poles, the Croatians, etc. We have Madai, and Madai uh, can also be, uh, in other ways of translating, Mede. So the Medes, the Medo-Persians, the Afghans, the Kurds, the area around Turkey and Iran, eventually moving a bit into the uh, area we know as India today. Uh, then we have Javan, and Javan, it's argued, are the seafaring peoples mentioned in verse 5. So many scholars would say that, that Javan's descendants became the Greeks. But not only the Greeks, also the Romans, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese. So Javan was very good with food. I definitely appreciate any food that is French, Spanish, Portuguese, or Greek and Italian. Uh, then we have Tiras. Tiras, we have the Thracians, the Teutons, the Germans. Uh, it's also argued that from Gomer descended the Germans, so there's maybe some overlap. Uh, and so you have the North Germanic, the Scandinavians, you have the West Germanic, you have the High and Low German, you have the Anglo-Saxon, the Jutes, the English. Many uh, people descended from Tiras. So the, the bigger picture that I want you to think of when you think of Japheth, just in your mind, European. Okay. Um, now notice uh, verse 5. Notice verse 5. Uh, not only that, but Russia, but that's a part of Europe. So uh, verse 5 says, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Notice how Moses differentiates this, and we'll see this a little bit in chapter 11, but eventually when they settle in, there's a language, there is a clan or family, and then there's the land they inhabit, the nation. Now, missiologists and sociologists are trying to distinguish how do we, how do we rightly define a people group? How do we do that? Do we do that based on, well, we wouldn't do that based on nations because we are in the American nation, but there are many more than just one people group. We're not just the American people group. There's Native Americans. There's lots of people groups within the nation of America. So that's not a good dividing line. Family is a little bit better. Clan is a good way of dividing, but missiologists today are now using the terminology of a language group because the language seems to be what ties people together. There's this argument of a heart language. The language you pray in is generally a heart language, uh, even though many people speak multiple languages. So note it here that Moses is down, like speaking back into this, that eventually these people had their own language, their own clan, their own nation. That's Japheth. But let's look at the second group, the sons of Ham. Um, someone told me one time that the name, uh, the word Ben, means son of, and then a ham, and so my last name is Ben Ham, so people would say you're a son of Ham. I don't know if that's true, uh, I don't see that here at all, uh, but the sons of Ham, we do see our four names, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So, four sons, last week we saw Canaan, if you wanna highlight him, we saw he was cursed with being a servant of servants. A lot of scholars believe Ham went with his son Canaan uh, or his sons, and they went south. So Ham's descendants left the ark, and they descended south uh, from Mesopotamia into Africa and into parts of uh, India. These descendants were those of a darker complexion, it's argued. And so it's believed that not only did they descend into Africa, but also into parts of China. So we have Cush. Cush is mentioned a lot in the Bible, and that is always referring to Ethiopia. And then you have Egypt, 
If your Bible translation is not the ESV, it may say Mizraim. That's a, another way of saying Egypt. So Egypt, Mizraim, same thing. Obviously, uh, Egypt became a great uh, empire. So that's speaking of that region around the Nile. Then we have Put, and that is in modern-day Libya, North Africa, just west of Egypt. And then, of course, the Canaanites. And we learned that the Canaanites are those who occupied modern-day Israel, Palestine, those surrounding regions. And then we learned, we read it a moment ago, Canaan's descendants became a lot of the Ites. And so we read it, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the not-so-brights. So we have all of these Ite names. Uh, that represents Canaan. But one thing I didn't point out in first service is if you notice in verse 18, it says, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. I believe he's speaking after, I mean afterward, meaning after uh, Israel would eventually re-inhabit the land of promise. Well, verse seven gives us the names of Cush's five sons. But then we come to verse eight. So we had five sons, but now he names a sixth son who stands apart as a very important son. In fact, we would say he's an infamous son. Uh, this son ostensibly did not stay in Ethiopia or Northern Africa, but migrated northeast to modern-day Iraq. And we learned some fascinating things about this man. Verse 8 says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and then it tells us in verse 12, Nineveh. So we learn a few things uh, from this text about Nimrod. By the way, Nimrod is uh, not a name you want to use for someone. That's become a slang word for ignoramus, okay? So please stop calling your sister Nimrod. That is an insult. But the name actually means something very significant. So first we learn in verse 8, he's a mighty man. He's the first on earth to be considered a mighty man. Now, that sounds like a compliment. Oh, wow, he's a mighty man. But see, his might was not in Yahweh. His might was in Nimrod. And so this is not a compliment. This is negative. This is actually language reminiscent of the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Nimrod, being a mighty man, the first on earth to have this title, to actually have a proverb about him, oh, that's like Nimrod. He, that's like saying he's a dictator like Stalin. Okay, he had an, an infamy about him. And this infamy was that he was a conqueror, that he was a leader, that he desired to be a ruler of a great world empire, and he sought to attempt to be a king. So not only that, but secondly, we learned that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, that sounds good in English. We as men might identify with that, like, oh, yeah, I know those guys. Those guys are mighty hunt. I go hunting with that one guy, and, man, he's good with a gun, or he's good with a, he's good with a bow and arrow. But that is not what is meant here at all. When it says before the Lord, another way of translating that is in defiance before the Lord. It means to stand before the face of God defiantly. And so Nimrod was a mighty hunter, but not necessarily of animals. It suggested he was a hunter of men. A Jerusalem Targum says he was powerful in hunting and, and wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. So Nimrod was an offense before the face of God. His name actually means we will rebel. 
Not I will rebel, I'm gonna break off and do my own thing. No, we, he's the one who led this rebellion, calling men, hunting after them, seeking to supplant Yahweh. In his um, historical book, The Two Babylons, Alexander Hislop writes a secular history. I'm not gonna repeat much of it here, but it is a fascinating story of how Nimrod was the one responsible for the Tower of Babel. It was Nimrod, it's argued, that draw or drew and brought together the human race after the flood to unite them as a nation of which he could be the king. So he was the rebel. He was the founder of Babel. He was the hunter of the souls of men. And if you were with us in our study of, um, well, yeah, it was a long time ago. We were uh, in Jonah. We talked about the, the wickedness of Nineveh uh, and that was founded by Nimrod as well. Now, we have to uh, eventually read ahead a little bit. Next week, we're gonna cover chapter 11. Uh, but as we'll see, this city uh, we know as Babel or Babylon, modern-day Iraq, becomes a center of idol worship, becomes a center of idolatry, and a center of paganism. So Nimrod rises up, and he defies God's cultural mandate. Remember the dominion mandate? It was spread out to the ends of the earth and bring the glory of my name, my fame to the ends of the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What does Nimrod choose to do? He chooses instead to defy that and instead of building out, he wants to build up. He wants to congregate. Let's not spread out, let's pull together. In fact, just look at this for a moment. Genesis chapter 11, when I've preached through Genesis before, I do it usually 10 and 11. So just, uh, we'll study this next week, but notice verse one of Genesis 11. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come. Remember, not go, come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so they start this new technology. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves, not to the glory of Yahweh, ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And we'll see next week what Yahweh's response is to this defiance. That was the desire, was to rebel. And so Clark says this, one commentator says, hence it is likely that Nimrod, having acquired power, used it in tyranny and oppression, and by rapine and violence, founded the domination, which was the first distinguished by the name of a kingdom on the face of the earth. And then he says this, or he asks this, how many kingdoms have been founded in the same way in various ages and nations from that time to the present? From the Nimrods of the earth, God, deliver the world. So this rebellion of Nimrod, it, it represents what lurks in the heart, in the mind of every person in Adam. There is a desire in each one of us in our natural state to make ourselves great, to defy the one true living God, and to hunt that which we desire in this world. So we'll come back to that a little bit later. But um, one thing we don't see in this genealogy uh, is an explicit mention of Eastern peoples, far Eastern peoples. Uh, 
Now, some would say, well, they're left out of this list. Uh, they're just not mentioned at all. Uh, and some would say, no, they're implied. Uh, in fact, I was fascinated to find that some scholars look at verse 15 with uh, the Heth people and verse 17, the Sinite people. There's a semblance of the word Sino uh, referring to China uh, or the Sino-American. We don't use that phrase a lot or that, that terminology. Um, but they would argue that the Far East peoples came from, they descended from Ham. It's very plausible. Well, we can't know for sure. But what we do see is Canaan, in verse 19, is the only person mentioned in this entire list where we're shown his land, his, the place that he occupies, his descendants. And I think that's because God is going to eventually, in Genesis, call his people to eventually as we look in the book of Exodus, drive out the Canaanites and inhabit that particular land. And so I think that's why the lands are mentioned. It says in verse 20, their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. We also see that in Shem, because Shem was to be given land. Now, that's Japheth, the European peoples, the Russian peoples. We have Ham, uh, which were much of the African and uh, much of the far East peoples, arguably, and then we have the sons of Shem. So he says in verse 21, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. That's a very important phrase. I'd love for you to circle that whole phrase. The father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. So Shem, the Shemites, or to simplify it, the Semites, the Semitic people. That's where Semitic com comes from, the name Shem. Uh, these people, Shem's descendants, went out from the ark and they occupied Mesopotamia from the Mediterranean to parts of West India. So Shem's sons become the Eastern and Middle Eastern peoples. From here, many of the uh, Arabic, the Indian, and the uh, Israelis. Now, the, I told you to highlight that, that section, the father of all the children of Eber. That name Eber is the name we're zooming in on. So we start with this broad brush, the swath of nations and names, and now we zoom into Shem and we zoom into Eber. Uh, Eber is the name from whom we obtain the word Hebrew. Eber and Hebrew, those, those are, that's where we've obtained that word. From Eber would eventually be born a man named Abram. We'll be introduced to him next week. And God would make a covenant with Abram and a promise that Abram would believe and his faith credited to him righteousness. Abraham is the father of all who trust in the coming Messiah. And so the rest of the book of Genesis and the entire Old Testament has zoomed in tracing and anticipating the future savior who would fulfill Genesis 3.15 that we've been waiting for. The one who would crush the serpent, who would have his own heel struck. Genesis 10.25 says, to Eber, to the Hebrew man Eber, were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. Peleg means divided. And then it says, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. So Peleg is the one we're going to focus on when we get into chapter 11. Now, some people say, what does it mean the earth was divided? Is this referring to when the landmass Pangaea split apart and formed all of the uh, the different continents we see today? Well, scientifically, that would have had to take place much sooner than the days of Peleg. So it's more likely referencing the table of nations 
that we're gonna read next week, that were divided out. In his day, Peleg's day, the earth at that time uh, was divided out at the Tower of Babel. Uh, so then we have another list of names, and I'm not gonna read through all of them again, but notice verse 29. There's a very particular name here that jumps out in verse 29, the name Jobab. Now, some scholars believe that this is our friend Job that we read about in the Old Testament. And the time does fit. Job is uh, arguably the oldest book uh, in antiquity from the scriptures. There's no evidence per se that that's exactly Job, but it's fun to speculate. There's a name that jumps off the page. But then we come to verse 32, and verse 32 says, these are the clans, the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and notice this second part, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. There's a, a big glaring, glaringly obvious application from this that we haven't talked about yet, and that is that if we don't know where we come from, then it's easy for us to become very tribalistic and very racist. And yet when we look at this, we realize that all of the peoples of the earth came from one family. And so that should just, on, on the, the surface of it, should eliminate uh, any sense of pride in our own nationality and our own people group and the color of our skin, saying I'm better than someone else. Now, if we could see this chapter visually in the form of a map, um, it gives us a little bit of a hint of where everyone descended. So Japheth, again, moved into Europe and Russia. Ham's descendants would have uh, descended into Africa and east, eventually migrating into the Americas. And then Japheth, the, the, blue, the blue squigglies are sort of the uh, European migration into North America. Uh, these are the clans of the sons of Noah. And so next week, what we'll see is how all of these nations will collectively rebel at Babel, a.k.a. Babylon. And ever since that day, we'll see next week how these nations continue to stand in defiance to Yahweh. So as you look ahead to next week, I want to encourage you to read Psalm chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 18. Psalm chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 18. Now, as we move from creation to the new creation, I want to make sure we understand a theology of kingdoms. We have 70 names listed here. But in reality, there are only truly two cosmic kingdoms. And I've taught this before, but I think it's worth repeating. So we, have two, we only have two kingdoms that have ever existed. First, we have the true kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. We also know it as the kingdom of God. This is, of course, the rule, the reign, the realm of Christ, the ruler. He's the king of kings. We prayed it earlier. He's the Lord of lords. He is the king above all kings. In fact, he's the one who created all things in heaven and on earth. And therefore, he's distinct from creation. And he has complete authority and dominion over all. As R.C. Sproul said, there's not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. He is sovereign over it all. And so that should cause us to rejoice and rest a little bit when we're stressed about our bills. He's sovereign over it all. And yet, just think of this, Christ, the king, he entered, though he's distinct from creation, he entered creation. He entered, as I like to say, time, space, race, and place. He was incarnate. He came as a baby, as a child. And then he grew within the people of Israel. He can trace his lineage back to Eber, back to Shem, back to Noah, back to Adam. He entered into creation. 
This king taught about his kingdom. He taught about its pervasive influence in the world. He demonstrated his kingdom when he reversed the demonic influence over creation. He revealed his kingdom by doing these miraculous works. And he secured his kingdom by dying Uh, As he was crucified, he was given a crown of thorns, and this crown of thorns was his coronation, showing that he would be crowned not with glory necessarily in his first coming, but with suffering. And yet, at his ascension, Jesus rose again and conquered that final enemy, sin and death, but then he ascended, which really sealed the fact that he was king. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so now... We're not naturally born into that kingdom, but we're born again into this kingdom. And when you and I become a citizen of this kingdom, when we're a citizen, we get all the blessings and the benefits of the kingdom. We have the joy of being called a new people. We're now a part of a new people who advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's the true kingdom. I said there's only two. See, there's a second kingdom, and it is a diabolical kingdom. It's a corrupted kingdom. As we just read in Uh, the book of Philippians, it's a twisted generation. And this kingdom, the second kingdom, stands in absolute opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Now, over time, it's gone by different names. Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, self, Babylon. Scripture uses Babylon often. We'll see that next week. But the agenda is always the same. The agenda is always to resist the king, defy the king, war against the kingdom. And this rebellion, it always involves pursuing self, exalting self, having pride and vanity, and then taking the things of this world and engaging them in the system of this world to achieve greatness and self-glory. You see, that's the legacy of Adam, and that's the legacy of Nimrod. The battle that happened in the mountain garden of Eden, it, as we'll see next week, continued in Babylon, and it continues to this day. Now, all of us, I said we're not naturally born into the first kingdom, but sadly, we're all naturally born in the second kingdom, meaning you and I as citizens are already at war with, I mean, just think about it. A baby born today in Ukraine is naturally an enemy of Russia. That baby born is just naturally, as a citizen, an enemy of this invading kingdom. So you and I, it's probably a bad example, but you and I are born as natural enemies. We're at enmity, Scripture says, with God. We're hostile enemies of the Father. And yet, because of Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus has rescued and transferred us into his kingdom. In fact, Paul in Colossians 1 uses the language of being transferred. When one kingdom beat another kingdom, all the citizens were immediately transferred to that new kingdom. And he says, that's what happened with Christ. You and I were transferred from the domain of darkness of Satan into the kingdom of light. And so, like Mephibosheth, David the king took his enemy who was crippled, and he picked him up, and he carried him to his own table, the table of the king. That's you and I. You and I are like that. Mephibosheth we've been carried to the table of the king. As we just sang, once your enemy, now seated at your table. You and I are now born again into a new kingdom. We are now citizens of heaven. But that leaves us with a quandary. And the quandary is, what do we do with Babylon? What do we do with this second kingdom? Oh, we're citizens of heaven and we can't wait to be there. But what do we do? This is, this is tough because we're dual citizens. We're citizens of America, most of you I think are, 
They're citizens of a nation, but we're also dual citizens of heaven. So what do we do with Babylon, the second kingdom? Well, there's three responses I think we can have, and I, the first two are terrible, but there, there are three ways we can respond to Babylon. So the first one is, number one, to escape Babylon. What do we do with the, the sinful world around us that's in defiance to God? Well, the first option is just get out of the world, escape. So there's a growing trend actually within Christianity of some, uh, some groups in Christianity are saying, let's pull away from the world. Let's form monastic communities for a couple hundred years because the church is lost. So let's just pull away. And then after 200 years, the church will be pure and strengthened and then we'll come back into the culture. And so the argument here is uh, leave the country or leave and go into the country or get up on a hill and look up for the rapture or build a bunker and make sure you have enough supplies and spam and we'll just outweigh the judgment to come. We'll just stay away from the world. And this is an escapist mentality. The escapist says, I don't have any responsibility for Babylon. I'm not called to, to reach my neighbor. And, and yes, this is the safest option to save our families from rescue our families from the clutches of Babylon. It's very safe, but it's also unfaithful to the Great Commission. Jesus didn't say, get out of the nations. He said, go make disciples of the nations. And so escape is not the best option. The second response is equally unbiblical, and that's on the flip side. That's to embrace Babylon. What do I do with the sinful world around me? Well, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's just celebrate what the world, well, like we're losing the moral argument. The church is irrelevant, so let's get more relevant. Let's reach out and embrace what the world embraces. Let's affirm what the world system says is good, beautiful, and true. We have churches that say, we ain't your grandma's church because we want to be different. I'm like, what was wrong with grandma? Grandma's a godly woman. I loved grandma's church. But what they mean by that is we want to do things in a way that maybe brings the world into the church. And if the church is a boat and the world is the ocean, I don't think bringing too much of the world into the church is gonna last very long. It's not a wise decision. Even this week I searched gay affirming churches in Bradenton. I just wanted to see what that web search would yield. And I was able, I was actually surprised to see in East Bradenton along State Road 64, there's two churches that say we affirm LGBTQ Christians. And I would say, and I've already taught on this, we have to engage the world in a way that we're not blending the kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of Babylon, right? That is syncretism at best or blasphemy at its worst. And so would we take the members of Christ's body and would we unite them with a prostitute? No, even that thought should produce within us a repugnant disgust. No, we are called out from the world. We're not to bring the world into the church to be more relevant. We're to come out from among them and be separate. We're to be holy as he is holy. And so is that the, are those the only two options? We're just supposed to escape Babylon or to embrace Babylon. Well, thankfully, there's a better way. I just want to argue that this is how we're to be number three, and that is that we are an embassy in and an embassy to Babylon. You see, as believers, we're already seated in the heavenly realms. We're already citizens of heaven. And that means until we're joined with Christ in the resurrection, the scripture uses a term for us, and that is exile. You and I are exiles. That means we are ambassadors of Christ. And that means the church then is the outpost for the kingdom. 
So we use this analogy in our um, membership class here at the church, which is coming up on August 7th and August 21st, if you haven't heard. We invite you to sign up for that on the app. But in that class, we say that we are, uh, when we walk into an embassy, we're walking into, on foreign soil, we're walking into a place where it is U.S. soil. In this one little spot, we come together and we realize they don't necessarily affirm your citizenship or make you a citizen, they affirm your citizenship. And so when you walk into this embassy, it serves as a place where citizens of that country can come together in a foreign land, but also where the ambassadors are sent out to represent their sovereign nation and its interests. That's what the church is, we're an embassy. So we don't escape entirely we don't isolate completely from the world. We do live separate and distinct as citizens of heaven, but that doesn't mean that we go and embrace the world and its system. No, we stand out, as Jesus said, as a city on a hill, as salt and light to see people transferred from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So there is, in our embassy, there's a coming in. Let's come in from the world and be united together, and there's a going out. And I think we... We typify that or we demonstrate that every Sunday with our call to worship. At the beginning, we're calling our church in. Now, that's not, by the way, just a reminder, grab your coffee and get your seat. That's, hey, you're being called in from the world. We're now meeting together with God's people. And at the end of our service, when we commission you out and, and we have a benediction, that's sending you back out into the world. There's a coming in, there's a going out. And so the Apostle Peter, I think it's interesting, in his first letter, he addresses believers in all different nations of Asia, but he calls them elect exiles. I like that. We're not to be embracers or escapists. We're to be exiles. We are like Israel in Babylon. We're called by God to plant vineyards, to settle down, to build houses, to get married, but to still maintain our identity as exiles. We have a homeland where we're waiting to go to. He would say there in 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's that personal sanctification, that personal holiness. But then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's our posture. We're to be among the Gentiles in a way that they can see our conduct and see our godliness. One day the rebellion that began in the garden that culminated with Nimrod will eventually reach its decisive end. One Italian proverb says, once the game is over, both the king and the pawn will go back into the same box. And I like that. It doesn't matter how great one person is, they may you know, announce themselves as ruler, as king, or as someone who's never even been known in history. One day the game will be over and all rebels will stand in judgment before the face of Almighty God, the same God they sought to defy. And today, though you and I, in our natural state, were born into Adam. The scripture says we're enemies of God. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you and I are now citizens of a true and greater kingdom. You and I can now serve, not ourselves, but the king of kings to whom belongs all glory. So what then is our commission? What should we then do? Well, most scholars count around, and I'll, you can do it later if you want, they count around 70 or 72 names, nations listed here. And many commentators argue 
that there's a parallel between Matthew chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus takes 70 or 72 of his followers and he sends them out. A lot of commentators say it was in the the mind of Christ that there would be a representative of the gospel in every nation. We know that's true, isn't it? We see the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, I'm sending you into all the nations. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a mandate to continue that today wherever God sends us. Now, we will do that until we sing this song together in Revelation 5, 9. This song is a new song, and the song goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Until that day, that glorious day when we see a representative from every people group standing before the throne of God and singing, worthy is the lamb. Until that day, we have the joy and the privilege and the honor and the expectation that we would be salt and light to all the nations. So may our lives, church, be built not upon our own abilities to preach the gospel. May our lives be built upon the rock, the solid ground, Christ, our firm foundation. All other ground is sinking sand, isn't it? So as we're about to sing, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Let's stand together and we're gonna sing that. And I'm gonna pray a, a concluding prayer from the Puritan prayer book, Valley of Vision. This prayer is called Privileges. I'm just gonna read this prayer and then we'll sing. Lord God, how great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without Christ, I stand far off, a stranger and outcast. In him, I draw near and I touch his kingly scepter. Without Christ, I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon my friend. Without him, I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him, I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him, all is wrath and consuming fire. In him is all love and the rest of my soul. Without Christ is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In Christ, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without him, darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him, an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without Christ, all within me is terror and dismay. And in Christ, every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without Christ, all things external call for my condemnation, but in him they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Lord, it is upon Christ, the solid rock, that we stand. So we pray that you'd give us faith, hope, and love, and boldness to be your ambassadors in this crooked and twisted generation. Until your kingdom comes, and your will is done. We pledge our allegiance to King Jesus for his glory, for our neighbor's ultimate good, and for the sake of Christ and his glory, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. 
You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.